When he went to South America, one of the very first things he saw was a slave market. And he said, that site has turned me into a lifelong abolitionist. And he writes about it very openly. He gets the permission of the Spanish king to travel through South America and repays him by very publicly criticizing Spanish rule there. As he travels through South America, he sees how the indigenous tribes are treated. He sees what missionaries are doing, how they treat the indigenous people so terribly. He sees slavery there. He sees how the land and the people are exploited. And he writes about it. He never quite dares to tell Jefferson in his face. But everybody else in D.C. gets Humboldt's like, why is this? This is not right. Because he looks at the human race as part of nature. So there is no better or worse, no inferior or superior. And he at some stage says something like, nature is this realm of liberty. And he applies that also to the human races. The 19th century saw many transformations. The origins of ecology and modern climatology new unifying theories of the living world, the first big science projects, revolutions in the Spanish colonies, new information systems for the storage and representation of data. Many of these can be traced back to the influence of one singular explorer, Alexander von Humboldt. Humboldt was one of the last true polymathic individuals in whom the sum of human knowledge could be seated. As the known world grew, he leaned increasingly upon the work and minds of his collaborators, a kind of human bridge between the age of solitary pioneers before him and the age of international interdisciplinary research he helped usher into being. Reflecting on his life, we natives of the new millennium, living through another phase transition in the information architecture of society, have much to learn about the challenges of weaving everything together into one holistic understanding. After all, when everything's connected, our individuality is cast in doubt. Truth is often hard to separate from politics and ethics, and maverick explorers find themselves caught in between incumbent power and the burden of responsibility to act on what they learn. Welcome to Complexity, the official podcast of the Santa Fe Institute. I'm your host, Michael Garfield, and every other week we'll bring you with us for far-ranging conversations with our worldwide network of rigorous researchers developing new frameworks to explain the deepest mysteries of the universe. This week, we conclude a special two-part conversation with SFI Miller scholar Andrea Wolf, author of six books, including the New York Times bestseller, The Invention of Nature, Alexander von Humboldt's New World. In this episode, we build on our explorations in part one and talk about the conflicts between truth and power, politics and science, the surprising unintended consequences of discovery, Humboldt's influence on scientific illustrator Ernst Haeckel's development of the idea that nature is an art form, the role of embodiment in innovation, discovery and creativity, and the effects of nature and the built environment on human thought. If you value our research and communication efforts, Please subscribe to Complexity Podcast wherever you prefer to listen, rate and review us at Apple Podcasts, and or consider making a donation at santafe.edu slash give. You can find numerous other ways to engage with us, 
at santafe.edu slash engage. Thank you for listening. If you think about like today, it's so difficult to be interdisciplinary, you know, as in one person, because everybody has to be so specialized. So instead of a Humboldt, we have to have groups of people, which I think this is the amazing thing about the Institute, you know, because you have these people together and then, you know, you get people, they even invite people like me, historians, you're not scientists, because there is some cross-fertilization going on between all of this. And you never, you just never know about the serendipity of sitting next to someone at, at lunch, talking about something you have absolutely no idea. Sometimes you also don't understand a word, really. But, you know, then you kind of ask and you ask more and then someone will explain it to you. And then it's almost like these little tentacles which go into another discipline. And through that, it's like a little tube. You can like suck up a little bit of that knowledge. <laughs> you just have to have lots, enough of those tentacles to hold it all together, I think. Someone will know something enough to feed the next person to get a little bit of that discipline. It's funny that you speak this way because this really does get back to, again, where we started with thinking about the world not as a machine, but as an organism. And so thinking about the scientific process, not as a machine, but as an organism, it almost looks like when I spoke with Chris Kempis on the show back in, I think, episode 17, we were talking about the transition from unicellular life into multicellular life and how it's an information scaling thing. There comes a point when the cell becomes so big that it, it literally just can't copy all of its DNA in time to reproduce you know, that's like one of several different pressures that seem to produce these these more narrowly specialized cells that become differentiated tissues and so on. And that sounds exactly like what you just described in the movement from generalists to specialists. And then into as that system scales, you get more and more intermediaries. There's like specialists that are now specializing in translation, carry the blood cells. Exactly. Then suddenly the communication becomes essential, doesn't it? Because otherwise you have all these specialists, but no one can communicate with each other. Yeah. I'm always amazed like because when I think about who you interview, so you need to be able to think yourself into so many different topics to even ask these questions. Sometimes I just don't understand something. It's so far away from me that it's actually even hard to think of a question and to dig deeper so you must have a quite a kind of polymathic mind to be able to interview all these different people. There is something about having that time to wander in one's youth, I think. Yeah. To bring this back around to specific SFI research, David Krakauer and, and Jessica Flack and Albert Cow have worked on stalemates and conflicts of interest. If it takes longer for a system to arrive at an answer, to perform a, a computation, then it arrives at a better answer. Then if it settles on an answer prematurely, mm -hmm. there are ways in which this kind of thinking can be applied to situations like Humboldt's early life, where he didn't have to decide what he was doing or where he was going to be. He wasn't pinned into a particular set of tasks. He was able to just wander and explore. And like you said, pivot to be out there in the field and on a lark, just go in a different direction and allow that kind of inspiration to guide him in the development of his associations and his maps. That's helped to be a wealthy Prussian aristocrat, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs>
And that's ultimately when you talk about the etymological relationship between scholarship and leisure, there is a sense in which the university system was intended for this. It was intended to give people a space within which they could explore the world of knowledge in this way and not merely as a preparation for pre-specified careers. Yeah. To bring this into contemporary situation and to ask about the future of, of education, you know, our director of education, Kerry Cohen, has spoken about how the future seems like it's going to be more accommodating to a plurality of paths to normalize the gap year so that people can go climb a mountain and have an epiphany before they settle into their desk life. I think there's something to that. I'm a great believer in very zigzaggy routes to your, in your careers. My career was never set to be out like this. There was a point when a lot of people said to me, oh, you're going to be a writer? This is just a really bad job choice. And there were, you know, there were years when it was, but it was the right decision. If I look at my schooling, and I think a lot of people have experienced this, one, I think one of the big issues, one of the big problems in our education system, at least in the UK and also in Germany, I don't know how it is in the US, but I think it's similar, is that very early on, you get put into this box of arts or science. You know, you are either rational, logical, or you are creative and, you know, artistic. So I was put into the creative artistic box very early on, because I'm not very good with numbers. So I was not very good in all the science subject. And I'm pretty sure that my science teacher would turn in their graves if they knew that, for example, I won the Royal Society Science Book Prize. How dare she write about the history of science? She does not have a clue about science. And I will say that I was taught wrongly. I have actually, by now, understood a lot of science. I was just taught wrongly. I need to be led into these complicated issues through a story. I got interested in the history of science through the story of these people. So I'm a people's person. I need this hooked on a person. And then you can take me down these labyrinthine, difficult, difficult routes. It's the same with when I'm doing philosophy now, like Hegel. Well, it's difficult. Kant, it's difficult. But, you know, I'm going along with it because there's a reason for it. And so I think one of the problems we have is that in our education system, we already tell children that you have to decide very, very early on. Now, how can you decide as a six-year-old or as a 16-year-old what you're going to do? Why do I have to decide to do either this or that? And if you look back, that is a very recent distinction. You know, look at someone like Goethe, for example, or Humboldt or Leonardo da Vinci. You know, all these people never had to make a decision between the arts and the sciences. And I think that's if the education system changes and allows us these gap years where you can wander, where you can think, then I think it's all the better. I know a lot of people in my generation who were much more straightforward in their careers. They knew exactly what they're going to do. They studied, they had their job. Now in their 50s, they're deeply unhappy, quite a lot of them, because they've basically powered themselves out. There's nothing left. But I have the feeling that I'm just starting. There's so many other things I want to write about. And frankly, I'm going to write until the pen falls out of my fingers or I fall off the chair when I'm that old. So it's that sense of finding really the thing, having the privilege. Let's just also say that having the privilege to find 
what you really want to do and that makes you happy. That's incredible. And I think Humboldt was lucky in that sense too. He found what he wanted to do. Luckily, his mother died early enough so he could afford doing this journey. But it's also grabbing then what you have and doing something with it and taking the risk. He took a lot of risk. He could have had a very comfortable life as a Prussian aristocrat. He risked his life almost every single day on this exploration. So I want to get into that because there's another dimension in the sense that fellow Miller scholar John Cagg talks about the Aristotelian golden mean in some of his writing. When I think about that, finding the, the, the thresholds and the balance points. I mean, this is something that com complex system science is rather preoccupied with, you know, finding sweet spots and critical transitions. There is carrying it too far. You can take it maybe a gap year, but if you were to take a gap decade, the path that you cut through the world might be too tangled for you to properly ever return to society. You talk about this in the book, and it's, it's fascinating. Upon returning from South America, Humboldt just did not fit in in his homeland anymore. He only felt, if he's not out in the wilderness exploring, he's really only at home in Paris, where there's this boiling intellectual activity, lots of international congress of ideas. From that point forward, most of his aspirations were foiled or frustrated or complicated in some way by the political milieu into which he had to reintegrate and ultimately really couldn't. His service to Prussian royalty being part of it, his conflict with the East India Tea Company and British colonial operations. But then also, you know, in his early life, he was able to travel on his own dime through South America. And then as he gets older, he wants to go east into Russia. He has to go at the expense of the czar. And he's like escaping. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's like deviating from the agenda to go off on his own exploration, courting disaster. The more he let the wilderness into him, the more he became a creature of the world and rather not so much a creature of the street level world that his family and everyone else was occupying, the more conflict he found himself in all of these, it seems like this political intrigue going on around him. I think it's actually, Humboldt very strange, he can be quite diplomatic. And I think his entire life is this balancing act between what he wants to do and what he can do. So he's a visionary. He's a really kind of quite revolutionary, but he still acts within the accepted norm, not entirely all the time, but within that. As he travels through South America, for example, he is definitely more flexible than if he'd be on a big government expedition, but he still has to get permissions from the local governors, from the viceroys, First of all, he has to get the permission from the Spanish king. As he goes along, he has a passport that gets stamped. So he has to negotiate the kind of the local rulers in order to do stuff. And he's very good at that because he's quite diplomatic and he's quite charming. And then later it becomes even more difficult on that trip to Russia because he's really watched by the Tsar's officials. So he deviates from the route, he does his kind of detours. But again and again in his life, he has that problem. And then it really becomes very obvious in 1848, which is the time of the German revolutions, where there is a moment, he's the privy councillor to the Prussian king. But at the same time, he's outspoken. He's written a lot about the South American Bolivar's revolution. He is a great fan 
of the American Revolution, of the French Revolution. So he's really a, a child of the revolutionary age. So his political ideas are with the revolutionaries. One day he stands at the back of the balcony behind the Prussian king as the Prussian king is addressing the revolutionaries in 1848. And the next day he's marching in the first row of the funeral to the fallen revolutionaries. A lot of people who criticize him for that, that he's, and there's someone who says like, oh, Humboldt, you know, always, he's a Republican who is like one foot in the antechamber of the king. So they see that this is problematic, but until he dies, he's basically trying to act within that constraint of society, because I think he is that there's no other option really. So he is a revolutionary, but he doesn't like the mob. He doesn't like bloody revolutions. He still likes some order and control. The bloodshed that happens then later on in South America, and then when Bolivar declares himself dictator, that is something where Humboldt is very critical about. He admires the American Revolution, but at the same time, he's a lifelong abolitionist. So when he is older and he has all these young American scientists visiting him, in Berlin, he asks every single one about what's going on, why do you still have slavery, again and again, because, and he says so, when he went to South America, one of the very first things he saw was a slave market. And he said, that site has made me, turned me into lifelong abolitionist. And he writes about it very openly in his books. He gets the permission of the Spanish king to travel through South America and repays him repays the king by very publicly criticizing Spanish rule there. As he travels through South America, he sees how the indigenous tribes are treated. He sees what missionaries are doing, how they really treat the indigenous people so terribly. He sees how, you know, slavery there, he sees how the land and the people are exploited and he writes about it. He never quite dares to tell Jefferson in his face, but everybody else in DC gets Humboldt's like, you know, why is this? This is not right, because there are no superior races, he says, because he looks at the human race as part of nature. So there is no better or worse, no inferior or superior. And he, at some stage, says something like, nature is this realm of liberty. And he applies that also to the human races. Yeah, this is on display time and time again in great scientists and philosophers, this tension between natural law and human law, biting the hand that feeds you. <laughs> like You get government-funded research or government-approved research, and then my loyalty is to the truth. You paint such a rich portrait of how his ecology informed his ethics. I'm glad we got here, because it's not just slavery, it's also local food production and subsistence farming versus cash crops, anti-deforestation, critical of dams, generally an anti-colonialist thinker. It's funny because I see in Humboldt's work something kind of like what we saw with Albert Einstein, where his ideas end up accidentally creating this horror, this emancipatory philosophy that he espouses, like you said, the revolutionaries in Prussia, that he can point to a different way of seeing things, but he doesn't lead people through it bloodlessly. And you know, you see the same thing with like Einstein sort of pivoting into like anti-nuclear 
oversight and all of this stuff, like an attempt to mop up knock-on effects of his problem child. There's one extraordinary example where, because he's a scientist, he's interested in, in a lot of different things. He was a mining inspector in his youth in Germany, and he inspects mines as he travels through Mexico. And there's this terrible thing that happens where basically speculators later use his information to speculate in Mexican silver and he's appalled by it and then there's this other thing where he brings back some guano from Peru the European scientists realize that this is a great fertilizer which then results in first of all the Peruvian farmers don't have it anymore who just used a little bit of it and it just destroys an entire ecosystem and Humboldt kind of regrets these things um, very much so because he's in search of truth but I think because he's such a system thinker he also understands these connections. I mean, we haven't really talked about this, but one of the reasons why I wrote this book, because he's really the forgotten father of environmentalism. And that was my starting point with all of this, because that's what speaks to my soul. Why have we destroyed this planet so much? So, and as a historian, I want to know where's this all coming from or who tried to help already before. So Humboldt, as he travels through South America, because he sees these connections in nature, actually sees how humankind is destroying nature. So there's this Extraordinary moment at Lake Valencia, which is in today's Venezuela, which was this very rich agricultural region. And he sees how deforestation has completely destroyed this area. And as he's there, he understands, and he's the very first to explain the fundamental functions of the forest for the ecosystem without using the word ecosystem, because the term actually was then coined by Ernst Haeckel later on, inspired by Humboldt. But he understands that trees enrich the atmosphere, that they store water, that they protect against soil erosion. He starts to speak out against monoculture, irrigation, deforestation, because he understands what the long-term effect is of that. That is so extraordinary. And then he actually predicts harmful human-induced climate change, which is just insane if you think about it. He didn't, he couldn't know the effect of CO2. But he talks about the effect of the steam that comes out of industrial centers, for example. So he is someone who understands this. And as he travels through South America, he sees what happened when trees are taken away from river banks, how that destroys the river. He sees how missionaries collect eggs of turtles at the Orinoco, which they use the oil of the turtle eggs for their lambs. And how then the locals tell him that every year there are less and less turtle eggs because, of course, the missionaries just take what they want. So he develops this ecological understanding, which I would also argue helps and is informed by his very close contact to the indigenous people. So his idea of Earth as a living organism is something that comes out of Jena, but I think it is something that's then confirmed and pushed in, in an even harder direction through the contact he has with the indigenous people. He travels with a very small team, so there are sometimes only two or three people with him. They're his guides. And he again and again talks about how they're the best observers of nature, the best geographers, because he relies on their knowledge. So I think that living organism, that everything hangs together, that's partly the kind of German nature philosophy and partly the indigenous knowledge he encounters in South America. That's perfect because that brings us right to the Hail Mary pass I wanted to throw here, which is this work about this 
seminal historic figure, a visionary, a pioneer, an innovator, is also about the development of a way of seeing the world and of being in the world that in part undermines that kind of great man narrative structure. You know, you do a great job of, of explaining this in the chapter on Charles Darwin and the way that Darwin was influenced by not only Humboldt, but by the enormous body of thinking on the transmutation of species that existed at that time. And his own grandfather, Erasmus Darwin, you know, Lamarck, all these other people, really just, you know, the way that we currently seem to like to tell these stories, again, this gets back to like the narrative compression of information, is someone was sitting at their desk and had a great idea. Really, yeah. all the pieces were there already, which is why you get that co-discovery. It just as a side note, you get the co-discovery of natural selection by Alfred Russell Wallace. It's interesting when you talk about the privilege that Humboldt had and his ability to take the time to develop his ideas. Wallace was like blue collar specimen collector working in the South Pacific who did not have the family backing, exactly. yeah. the wealth and the luxury, the leisure to develop these ideas, except on the side. Yeah. There's something about ultimately, even though this is a story about a deeply important, in many ways, underappreciated, at least in the United States, individual, it's also a story about the communal enterprise of discovery and how none of these people really were capable of doing this on their own. And we completely leave out the indigenous piece of this in so many accounts of scientific discovery. I'm glad you brought that up. So I think there are several things. One, weirdly, no one quite believes me, but this is for me, it's not a biography about Alexander von Humboldt. It's a biography of an idea. That's why the book is called The Invention of Nature, which he, of course he didn't invent. And that's why I have eight chapters in there about the people who were influenced by Humboldt, because I was interested, how do these ideas travel through history? Humboldt did a lot of things that he never finished. For example, all his ideas about environmentalism. He never became an activist. It's then people like John Muir or George Parker Marsh who kind of pick up these ideas and follow it through. For me, I'm really glad that you brought this up because it's something that a lot of people don't actually understand. This is not a biography about this great white man at all. This is a biography about an idea and also about how this came from so many different people because Humboldt, one of the reasons I would argue that he's not famous anymore today is because there's not one big discovery attached to his name. He didn't come up with a theory of evolution. He didn't discover a planet or a natural law. And none of the stuff he comes up with is plucked out of the nothingness. Everything is floating around. What he's doing is he's putting a lot of stuff together that's floating around. He sees a lot of things on his travels that other people who sit in their kind of little study don't see, so he can actually put these things together, and he's a great communicator. These ideas are there, so for example, Schelling with his idea of nature, philosophy, and the unity, but it is Humboldt who takes that and applies it to science and to nature and explains it in a way in his best-selling books that it reaches a huge audience I'm talking about like the army of people who's helping him because he relies on that and he always talks about it. And it's the same with the indigenous people. The big problem we have as historians is that we have very, very little documentation about this, which is one of the reasons I think why they get a smaller place than they should have. 
because even people like Humboldt don't think they're important enough to kind of write about. So when you look at his very lavish books, these engravings, in his landscape engravings, he draws them so he, you know they're not devoid of them. He writes about them a bit in his diaries for us to really properly write about them, not enough. There's a very long section, for example, in his diary where he describes the production of curara poison and where he describes how the shaman does it, you know, in, and it goes on for pages and pages because he's absolutely fascinated by it. He's interested in, you know, must try ayahuasca, you know, he's like all these things he wants to, you know, he wants to experience, he wants to learn, um, and the and the indigenous people are his, are his guides. There's one scene where one of them, they can distinguish 15 different types of trees by eating the bark. And of course, Humboldt has to kind of try it. And is amazed because he said, it just all tastes the same. How can they do that? There's a lot of that. So yeah, for me, this is why the title is not Alexander von Humboldt's life, but the title is The Invention of Nature. Now feels like the perfect time to get into some of that last piece of your book on the impact of his ideas and his work broadly. We've already touched on Darwin but I do want to make sure that we get to Ernst Haeckel because Haeckel, as perhaps the sort of er scientific illustrator, holotypic individual, aside from, like you said, coining the word ecosystem, is also deeply influential in ways that are kind of largely invisible or subterranean to people in terms of his influence on the way that we think about this stuff. I, I want to toss it over to you, but just briefly after saying, you know, earlier when you were talking about extending a tentacle or out, you know, between one mind and another mind in this multicellular knowledge project. This reminds me of a documentary that was made about Heckel's life, Proteus, in which they situate his work on the descriptions and illustrations of deep sea invertebrates, the political and economic context that created that, which was we were trying to lay that telegraph cable across the Atlantic in order to communicate stock prices between New York and London. They kept breaking the cable and having to dredge it back up and finding out that our beliefs about the ocean floor were completely wrong. We thought it was this frozen wasteland and it was full of life and these cables were encrusted with things. That is where this documentary Proteus puts that threshold moment where they start to articulate Heckel's development of nature itself as an art form, as an artwork, as a product of a kind of mathematical cosmic intelligence. This is again, like, <laughs> here there be tigers, as far as this being a, a, a conversation about complex system science, multi-scale thinking, this deepening revelation of the living world as an organism does tend to lend itself to this lofty thinking that results not only in gorgeous architecture, like you show inspired by his illustrations, the beginnings of what we might think of now as sort of like biomimicry in architecture, but also lends itself to this understanding of humanity as participating in a mentation greater than our own. I can't remember the last time someone asked me about Ernst Hecker. It's so weird. It's one of the chapters I never really get asked about. You just suddenly kind of brought me back to it because I loved writing that chapter and I loved writing the research because it was so rich and so different. I think he's an extraordinary um, scientist who, believe it or not, was also in Jena, but he just 
much later. So there's something going on in that little film <laughs> there. I mean, he's much, much later there. He's this young scientist who's completely obsessed with Humboldt and reads his books. And he has like a Humboldt portrait in his study and on Humboldt's birthday, like a wreath around it. And he is forced by his parents to become a doctor and he hates it. And he kind of basically eventually ends up studying marine organisms. And he has that incredible talent, which I've talked to quite a lot of people about it, which seems to be very, very rare that he could look in the microscope with one eye and the other eye could be on the paper so he could draw, which when you look at his incredible paintings, you understand that it's not possible, can't be possible otherwise, but they're so stunningly beautiful. And I think he is again, someone who makes sense of nature with a pen in his hands. He needs to draw it to actually understand it. He draws these incredible, tiny, tiny marine organisms, which you can only see through a microscope publishes them as these large, beautiful, colored plates. It's like a magazine which comes out in several parts and people love it. It becomes something very important. I think that's what interested me also very much. It becomes an inspiration for artists, for architects, for furniture designers, for jewelers. So Tiffany, for example, Louis Tiffany is obsessed with him. And a lot of his lamps and jewelry is kind of inspired by that this kind of diaphanous kind of quality of these organisms there's something so beautiful and alive in it so art nouveau is inspired by these tentacles by these curvaceous forth by this kind of these shapes from nature now this is at a time when the machine age takes over so we feel this loss this disconnection to nature. Heckel provides them through his science with something that becomes part of a very different aspect of life. And a great moment when at one of the, and I forgot which year it is because it's like seven years ago that I did the research for that. But at one of those Paris expositions, the gate, which a French architect kind of created, and people could walk through it. It was like a single cell organism just kind of blown up and people were absolutely enthralled by it because they had never seen anything like it. For Hecker, he really becomes a believer in monoism. So he sees that there's this one divine force in everything, that God is kind of Everything's one because he's internalized this idea of the living organism. And interesting, you know, Humboldt, for example, is someone who never writes about God or religion. So he kind of, I think, in his very diplomatic way, keeps out of it. I think Humboldt was an atheist. You know, he believes in a life force, but not in a divine force. Why Heckel believes in the divine, there's another aspect to that. I love there's a section prior to this where you talk about Humboldt describing the germination, blooming foliage, fecundity, fading, withering, and corruption of stars. Yeah. Which is again like a gesture towards you talk again and again how he's decentering human exceptionalism in this networked ecological worldview. And this is a Copernican move, right? It's moving us sort of off to the side to participate in a much greater thing. And he's doing that in time there too. And so again, this rings with me into ways, I feel like SFI attracts a lot of weird people, not just people here on campus, not the people doing the research, but tilting a spear after 
really profound questions tends to invite a lot of usually adorable lunacy. And one of them, I would say, honey traps for that kind of thing is in this conversation around the collective computation of societies, the notion of all of human civilization as like a giant single superorganism having its own thoughts that are ineffable to us. Whether you want to talk about God or not, it does still reach out into you know the point where you can, as Heckel did, talk about Kunstformen art forms in nature. I mean, this is so confused now because people are so polarized and touchy around the difference between evolution by blind forces of natural selection and, and random mutation and the idea of intelligent design. But then you get people like Michael Levin, who came and spoke here recently, Tufts developmental biologist, collaborator of SFI external professor Daniel Dennett, who's working on stuff that seems positively 19th century, like the role of electromagnetic fields in governing the development of organisms, like the regeneration of limbs and the coordination of tissues. Mm. And, you know, being able to use fields to shape the ontogeny. Dennett and, and Levin just wrote this fabulous piece for Aeon a couple months ago about cognition all the way down. The idea that we're not just talking about thinking brains, we're talking about thinking cells. I've heard our president, David Krakauer, talk about a kind of complex systems panpsychism that you can accept once you think of cognition as a property of adaptive matter rather than mm. something that is like locked up in one given scale or one given substrate. That's why I am totally obsessed with that Merlin Sheldrake book, Entangled Life, because that's exactly what he's talking about. Once you leave your kind of preconceived categories, suddenly everything's just open up. And he's also one of those scientists who says, like, you need to use imagination because you need to leave these categories behind to understand there's a whole, now it's become accepted knowledge, this kind of world wood web. But when they started out with it, everybody thought, those early scientists were completely mad. Trees are communicating with each other. It's just kind of madness. And I think when you start about looking about fungal systems, then it just goes, okay, there's a whole other world out there and we just have to open our minds. And someone like Humboldt was someone who was just very open to anything, any possibility. You just let your mind roam and very often there's a dead end, but then you just start again and start again rather than going on that that one motorway you have and you just that's why i think zigzagging is so good because only when you get off and go one and down one of those kind of dead ends you'll find like this little path that leads you somewhere else i feel like the place to bring this down for a landing is in embodiment of understanding and knowledge and cognition you just mentioned thinking with a pen in your hand I consider what we're doing here the form of kind of like termite collaborative mound building where we're creating a conceptual object that emerges somehow from between us. But we're just sitting here throughout the entire record of great scientific discovery. You hear, oh, I was going for a walk. And, you know, you talk about Wordsworth and Coleridge as walking poets. And I think that just for those who have been sitting at a desk listening to us for this whole conversation, this seems like a good place to invoke the movement of the body as a cognitive act, as, as like a part of the process of, of discovery. And I'd just love to 
hear you wax on that for a bit. Humboldt always said, I don't want to be one of those geologists who judge the creation of the earth by looking at their local hill. One thing is to kind of get out and see and feel. I'll give you an example for me to do my research for this book, I think might be an example for this, why I really believe that you have to put your body out there. So it became pretty clear pretty early on for me that I will not be able to write this book if I've not actually seen some of these landscapes. Well, I thought I need to see them in order to describe them, to make sense of them, where is what, kind of more intellectually almost. But then actually it turned out that was much more visceral experience, much more physical. For example, going up Chimborazo for me was, and that is, it sounds maybe a little bit esoteric, but what I'd done is like I read the diary beforehand and then I decided, you know, these are the points I need to see. And then I took the transcriptions of those parts of Humboldt's journey with me. So when I went to the Orinoco or to Chimborazo, then I would kind of reach wherever I needed to go and then read what he had read. So it was this very strange intellectual and physical experience where I really felt I was coming closer to him than if I'd not done that because his diary made so much more sense by breathing thin air. Once you're up at like 15, what, 16,500 feet, your brain just doesn't work quite as well anymore. And then reading something and then you suddenly realize what he did. For example, the paddling down the Orinoco was, I had never been to the rainforest and I was so excited to go to the rainforest. And it was kind of exciting for a day. And then I suddenly realized, because I'm not a botanist, I'm not a biologist, it's just a big green wall. It doesn't, you know, nothing made sense. There was none of that <laughs> overview. And you were just attacked by mosquitoes the whole time. So it's something that comes up then in my writing, because I suddenly realized that in almost every single diary entry, he writes about his, the mosquitoes. So the mosquitoes featured in the book, which probably would have not featured if I'd not been with my body in that place. Sometimes I have a writer's book and I go for a walk and I think, oh, maybe now something's going to come and nothing's going to. It's only, I mean, for me, it happens when I, <laughs> when I put my hands in the soil and I garden, then it happens more. Sometimes weeks later, there's never an epiphany where suddenly, oh, I need to run inside and write this paragraph. But I do think that physicality and intellect belong together because in a way, you know, our thinking is in our body somehow also. So it is connected. So why and it's completely logical that that should have an, an effect. And it's very strange in this pandemic, for example, this is a book, you know, the last 14 months, I basically sat on this chair writing this book. And it turned out that this is a book, the new book is a book about the self. And weirdly, I've written it in this very enclosed, just with myself way. So I don't know if that has an effect on the writing of the book. I don't know, but it kind of feels if the pandemic had happened while I was writing the Humboldt book, it would have been an absolute disaster because I was out in the world for years traveling across the South America and America and archives and so on. And this has been very much physically also what it is intellectually just about you know the world through the prism of my mind well i mean there's a reason that churches have tall ceilings right the influence of the built environment on our thought processes is, is real which is why i love when you talk about this you talk about thoreau in this and walden you bring this up also in relation to heckel and his talk about urban flight 
from the polluted European cities of the latter 19th century, people just being desperate to get out. I remember in, in high school, I was given a creative writing assignment on the transcendentalists to just go out and sit behind my house. And I remember sitting there in like a kind of a wooded area and just being annoyed by the sounds of car traffic and airplanes flying overhead until it clicked for me, which is unity of the human and the natural world. And so like, that's a kind of a revelation that can only happen when we are living in the wake of these discoveries and their consequences, when the natural world inspires architecture and design and brings some kind of warmth and organic quality into the environments that we have created for ourselves after you know hundreds of years of pushing all that stuff out and seeking this like orderly regulated linear kind of world space around us so it's just in a way it's it's hopeful to see urban planning and and sustainable design and all of this as a consequence ultimately of the impact that all of these people that you've written about have had on society, bringing nature as we now think of it back into cities in a way, because we understand having trees improves academic outcomes. People in treeless neighborhoods are dying from mental disorders, from not being surrounded by nature. In a way, we're, we're stuck. Things are going to look very different moving forward. The world has integrated some of Humboldt's world. We've taken up enough of it to start asking ourselves questions about what it means to be able to have that kind of indigenous appreciation for the systems in which we exist without having to leave the city. One of the things is I've always thought that is quite important. It's not just about going into the wilderness. That's very much white privilege. You can go and spent a lovely time in a national park or go up the Andes or something like that. Very few people. So in order to make this world better, we have to bring nature also into cities. Like cities have to be livable. That's incredibly important. And sometimes I have a problem with this whole kind of wilderness obsession. I think what is very, very important to actually set aside quite a lot of wilderness so that we kind of keep our biodiversity, but not for us to go and visit, but just to leave it undisturbed. For me, when the pandemic started, the thing that kept me sane, I mean, I've always written about nature. I've written about gardens and everything. I've never had a garden. I've never had a kind of like vegetable garden. So I got stuck in Germany and I created out of like nothing, basically, only using recycled material, which I could find like in the neighborhood, like on the neighboring estate here. I built like a really big, big vegetable garden. And that kept me sane, totally. So saying that I don't know where I would have been otherwise, because there was something, we were so lucky about the weather here, and like this year where it's terrible this spring, but you know, you put these shriveled seeds into the soil and it's such a cliche. And there's a reason why it's a cliche, because it works, because there's something that does, it happens to you when you put a seed in and you grow your spinach and you eat it. And it's just so satisfying. For me, that's a human right. Every single human has should have the right and access to nature in one way or another. It's incredibly important for our sanity because if you think about it, our imagination was formed 10,000 generations ago in nature. It's in our DNA. We need to be connected to nature. And not just pandemic potted plant obsession. No, think a little <laughs> bit more.
So I'd like to think that we are in this now and it's terrible. But I think we are also all incredibly tired about it. And there needs to be a sense of not everything that happens now can be determined by having lived through a pandemic. You know, there, there is something else also. There's something actually much more important, climate change. We really need to tackle that. We can't just forget that. That's the bit I'm really depressed about. But that is only going to work, I think, if we make people care about nature also. Otherwise, it's going to work. Well, this has been a total blast. I'm deeply grateful that we managed to finally get it together. I'm sorry it took so long, like a year and a half. Yeah, a year and a half. Oh, yeah, because it was before. Because Yeah, because of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. I remember asking you in person on campus if we could do this. Well, I hope I can come back. Me too. I should be begging next week. So we Me too. Back. And then, then we can have a conversation about fierce individualism. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> See how that goes. Andrea, thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you for listening. Complexity is produced by the Santa Fe Institute, a nonprofit hub for complex systems science located in the high desert of New Mexico. For more information, including transcripts, research links, and educational resources, or to support our science and communication efforts, visit santafe.edu slash podcast.